December, Mikhail Kalashnikov died at the age of 94. Perhaps like many who read the news, I could not associate an individual with the name, with that name, and undo the image of the ubiquitous weapon, otherwise known as the AK-47. But then again, like many popular inventions of the sort, the rifle, Automat Kalashnikova, acronym AK, carries the name of its designer. The news preoccupied the press with spurs of discussions on the ethically polemical success of this invention and the genius behind it. Most pertinent to the history of design is the essay posted on Design Observer by Owen Edwards titled, For Better or For Worse, The Design Endures. Commenting on the ubiquity of the Kalashnikov, Edwards compares it to the Beetle car, foregrounding modernist principles of functionality um, to validate the successful design. The AK might very well be a form formidable piece of machinery. However, Edwards, along with other recent obituaries of Mr. Kalashnikov, ignored contingent symbolic and political factors that make the Kalashnikov rifle, Kalashnikov rifle a pervasive global icon. The popularity of the rifle, I would like to argue, reveals more than a success story of the principles of design functionalism and human ingenuity. The AK-47 was a quintessential icon of, in the repertoire of signs, symbols, and myth, occupying the imaginaries of a revolutionary fervor in and through which transnational political subjectivities of the Cold War period were formed and actualized on the battlefront. The Kalashnikov makes an interesting case as an object of study in design history from at least three perspectives, which I shall deploy and discuss in this paper. The first pertains to the relation between the object and its designer, and joins here established literature critiquing the modernist myth of design and the designer as the ages of an artifact's success. The second points to the complex relation between the designed object and its public mediation, between the object as utility or function and the object as symbolic image carried through various means of visual media. The object being a lethal weapon, however, begs the question of how the image abstracts the AK-47 out of its material consequences and imbues it with revolutionary idealism. Um, I will conclude with a third perspective by probing the trans transnational circulation of the AK image through international networks of solidarity. Um, as a case in 1960s and 70s visual and print cultures, um, the icon of the AK-47 holds significance, I believe, to emerging conversations on graphic design in its global uh, history. So I shall start with that first. I'd like to begin here by asking just what is it, what is so particular about this assault rifle that makes it outweigh others of, of the same type and renders its design particularly distinct in the history of modern arms ma manufacture. In most accounts of the AK-47, whether academic studies or personal memoirs, there is mention of how some members of the US military frustrated with their dysfunctional US-made M16, replaced it in the midst of battle with an AK snatched off their enemy. These oft-recounted incidents, incidents go as far back as the Vietnam War and extend into more recent Gulf Wars. The narratives, whether accurate or not, inevitably reinforce the myth of the Kalashnikov as the most drugged and reliable of its kind for at least four decades. 
Mikhail Kalashnikov, a member of the Red Army who originally held expertise in tank design, began conceiving the AK assault rifle in 1944. Two years later, his AK-47 model was approved for experimental development. Following a series of alterations and prototypes, the weapon was adopted by the Soviet military in 1949. The AK-47 witnessed further improvements that, could engender new, that would engender new models, co-authored by collaborators of Kalashnikov, including the AKM in 1959 and the AK-74 in the mid-70s. The Kalashnikov's design is regarded as an innovation within the lineage of the modern machine gun. The latter is the result of convergence since the late 19th century between, on one hand, technological changes in mass production and mechanized systems, and on the other, the material necessities of modern warfare, the need for small arms, lightweight, with long-lasting ammunition. Undoubtedly, innovations in weapon manufacturers are particularly stimulated at times of war, where fierce competition exacerbates warring nations to arrive at advanced models that could claim the military supremacy and perhaps victory on the battleground. It is within the Second World War that context that the AK-47 was conceived or being conceived. In fact, the Kalashnikov holds significant resemblance to its German predecessor, this one, the one on the bottom, just, uh, just across from it. Uh, so its German predecessor, the STG-44. In fact, they look even very similar. Um, the advantage of the AK-47 lays in the fact that it was designed for easy manufacturing in the midst of war, uh, or in the aftermath of, of war, with scarcity of skilled labor and material resources in mind. It is also known to be quite malleable mechanically and structurally, which prevents it from uh, jamming and facilitates disassembling for cleaning and maintenance. Economy, ease of production and functioning, as well as durability, would clearly rank it high in the modernist design ethic of functionalism. But are these sufficient criteria to guarantee its success and even eventual popularity? It has been argued that the principal characteristic of the AK-47 is its lack of novelty. I'm here referring particularly to the work of Graves Brown on the subject. Um, where he, he says in the way it, it lacks novelty in the way that it builds on earlier designs of machine guns without the urge to be patented for originality and the, in the fact that it is not a super technology. It represents thus a counterexample to the prevailing episteme of technological progress linked to the design of high-tech weapons, here specifically in the context of nuclear armament, so it's a counterexample, and also in relation to the M16, which was dubbed the the plastic, the first plastic gun, because it used a, part, a new technology of plastic in making the gun, which also proved to be inefficient, especially in the Vietnam. Um, it is characteristics of low-tech simplicity that made the AK the most appropriate weapon of the poorer third world, as the latter revolted against colonial occupation and struggled against imperialist forms of economic exploitation. While I will be discussing this political context in the following section, it is however important here to point to the change in military history brought by the emergence of revolutionary armed struggle. <coughs> Guerrilla warfare, as it is commonly referred to following the influential manuals of Mao Zedong, already in 1937, and the one by Che Guevara in 1961, is premised on tactics through, tactics through which a local insurgency 
insurgency could confront a conventional army greatly superior in armed force, weapons, and military infrastructure. The necessity of cheaply armed and mobile fighters renders the AK-47 a favored weapon of guerrilla warfare simply on material and technical grounds. The surge of guerrilla warfare in armed conflict across the Third World since the 1960s, spanning Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, had been a chief factor contributing to the rising demand of the AK. Version, versions of the Kalashnikov were produced in at least <coughs> nine countries in different variants, as we can see in the slides. Most notably, there's the Chinese type um, uh, 65. The, the Soviets may, might have distributed large numbers free of charge to their allies worldwide. However, a study has revealed that out of an estimated total of 50 million AK, um, AKs, only 4 million were actually produced in the Soviet Union. And the, the small arms survey in 2001 puts a total production of Kalashnikovs to at least 10 times more than that of the M16. The small arms survey counts up to um, 70 to one, uh, 100 million AKs have been in production uh, to uh, compared to a 7 million in number of the M16. Um, despite the undisputed functionality of the machine gun, the success of the Kalashnikov already underlines, underlies a more complex set of material conjuncture and historical contingency that cannot be credited solely to design ingenuity. It also points to political and geographic disjunctures that equally challenge attributing the AK's global expansion to one hegemonic center of power based on the country of original creation, in this case, Soviet Russia. This is of particular relevance to the discussion on the transnational flow of objects and images that I shall come back to towards the end of my paper. At this point, the question remains, however, how does a weapon, a tool of violence, designed to kill, as Joanna Burke told us um, in her keynote, uh, enter into the realm of global popular culture. To a wider public than that of trained military, the AK-47 invokes something other than the durability of its bar barrel and parts on the battlefield. Its popularity, or lack thereof, from a counter-public, relies on the symbolic potency of the object as image. And I Um, in studying the cycle of the scooter from an object designed in Italy to an image of British counterculture, Dick Heptage asserts that the moment of design production does not determine consumption and or use. He introduces to the analysis a separate moment of mediation between the object and the potential public, involving what he refers to as the intercession of the image between the consumer and the act of consumption. The latter being particular to the production of consumer, consumers within a capitalist economy, relying extensively on marketing, advertising, and design industries, contributed to the dematerialization of the object and conversion of consumption to lifestyle. The appropriation of the Italian scooter by the mods in Britain, as identity marker Heptage has, Heptage has claimed, was, was part of the general aestheticization of everyday life achieved through the intervention of the image. Following Heptage, I would like to argue that if the mods in Britain had their Vespa, the revolutionaries of the third world and the new left globally had their AK. The case of the Kalashnikov, when examined as an image, however, brings forth three new problems that extend Heptage's theorization to new frameworks. 
First of all, the mediation of the designed artifact is outside the conventional capitalist cycle of production and individual consumption. Second, the object in question is a weapon, again designed to kill, and not an ordinary object of everyday life. Third, the object along with its associated practices and meanings, to be rightly inserted within networks of relationships, as Heptage does, requires a transnational framework of study. <coughs> the Kalashnikov may not have been the intended object of promotion, as is the case of product advertising, yet it got publicized by mere contingency. The AK figured as a shared expression of a means of revolutionary struggle in images advocating anti-imperialism and disparate national liberation movement across the world. The image of the gun-toting guerrilla occupied much too many photographs in the press, films, and posters from the 60s through the 70s. Since the success of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, an iconography of the heroic, victorious guerrilla brandishing their gun up in the air was already in the making. And that, that we see here. This is uh, Castro and his comrades um, uh, celebrating the victory of the Cuban Revolution in 1959. And this gets to be repeated in other contexts. The bottom poster is in, in Lebanon, um, El Salvador. And then, of course, this is reproduced. It becomes an iconic image through, through posters across these different uh, struggles. So <coughs> it seduced similar revolutionaries elsewhere uh, to hold on to their gun when confronted with the camera. Just like the stylized portrait of Che Guevara canonized the looks of the, youthful, the, look, the looks of the youthful revolutionary as the heroic guerrilla, the visual rhetoric of the AK aestheticized armed struggle in political posters. Um, <coughs> we start seeing that across struggles, um, I mean globally, uh, particularly with the Palestinian resistance, and this is an image of uh, Leila Khaled, which was also turned into posters. We see that in South Africa. This is an example of a solidarity poster by the Medu Art Ensemble, uh, but also in, in Chile, this is Salvador, Salvador Allende. This is, in fact, the, a very iconic photograph in which it's the, the, the gun has been given as a gift by Castro to Allende before, a year before he died. Um, <coughs> so it's, th 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 what's interesting here as well is that the relation between the fighter or the guerrilla with the gun becomes also it, uh, somehow a materialization of the idea of the of the freedom fighter of this ideal. It's a it's a connection to the to the body of the fighter that becomes important. Um, we see that again uh, in con in the Chinese context, and here we we, we don't we just it's a disconnect. It's a, the the raised fist again, just with the gun. Um, Eventually, some of the guerrilla movements, uh, like in Colombia, the, the logo of the FARC, the, the Revolutionary Armed Forces, has the crossed AK-47. Mozambique, <coughs> uh, following independence, they actually use the AK-47 on their flag. Uh, and Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, have it as part of their, their, their logo. In fact, it follows the, uh, the Iranian model. We can talk about that later. Um, and we saw yesterday in Louise's presentation uh, the, the, the decorated handkerchief done by prisoners where, um, in Northern Ireland, where there's a presentation also of the AK-47 as an image of the, of the struggle. 
Um, much has been written on the image of Che Guevara and its mediation of the re revolutionary archetype of the 1960s and on the clenched fist as the quintessential symbol of dissent and resistance. Despite its ubiquity, little, if any, scholarly text has addressed the semiotic, iconographic, and aesthetic articulations of the Kalashnikov visual culture. Perhaps the most radical and polemical in its expression, the AK image formed part and parcel of the repertoire of symbols that stood for revolutionary discourse in the of the 1960s and 70s. If anything, it is the sign that relates most candidly and without compromise to the embeddedness of violence within the discursive framework of the, of the revolutionary left at the time. An analysis of the image remains a complicated task that requires careful contextualization of the AK within the discourse that enabled its construction and circulation as a sign with shared meanings, values, and associated practices. Knowing all too well that the visual sign of the AK, especially when aestheticized and publicly mediated as such, normalizes the meaning it carries and facilitates its reproduction within the discursive space of circulation. Contemporary intellectuals of the left emphasize the emancipatory agency of violence in revolutionary struggle against oppressive and exploitative, poli exploitative political structures. From Hans Fanon speaking on behalf of colonized Africa to the cultural revolution of Mao Zedong in, in China and Che Guevara's revolutionary anti-imperialism in Latin America and their endorsement in the West by the likes of Jean-Paul Sartre and Régis Debray, the discourse of revolutionary violence circulated in all corners of the globe. In his preface to Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, Sartre states that, and I quote, the rebel's weapon is a proof to his humanity. For if he gives in to the oppressive force of the <coughs> colonizer, he degrades himself and he is no longer a man at all. Shame and fear will sl split up his character and make his inmost self fall to pieces. Guevara equally denounced the dehumanizing effect of imperialism and basing himself on the successful model of the Cuban insurrection, he theorized and strategized for the immediate and un uncompromising armed struggle as a means to create revolution to create the revolution. The symbol of the AK-47, while referring directly to armed struggle as the new revolutionary means, invokes agency and self-determination to those who have been structurally oppressed. It enables cathartic change in the perception of the collective self, from an image of distress and servitude <coughs> to that of uh, self-determination and hope for perhaps an imminent change. The, revolution dis the revolutionary discourse hailed liberation movements in the 1960s, stretching across the disparate geographies of politics and politics that made up the Third World. With this, I, I now move to the last argument, last point, uh, on the transnational circulation of the AK-47 icon, and try to conclude with this. <coughs> Oops. <laughs> Mobilized by networks of solidarity, a transnational revolutionary subjectivity <coughs> was constituted through a, a global flow of people and media articulating a shared repertoire of revolution, revolutionary symbols, the AK-47 notwithstanding. A colonized people is not alone, Fanon asserted, while Guevara ur urged anti-imperialists of the world to unite 
around a shared struggle and create, and it's his famous quote, <coughs> two, three, or many Vietnams. Solidarity was at the core of a new leftist transnational imagination. It was expressed in and carried through the flow of revolutionaries and ensuing media. Revolutionaries traveled along the geographies of struggle and met in international congresses, such as the Afro, the, one of the first one is the Afro-Asian Alliance meeting in Bandung in 1955, and one of the very famous later ones is the uh, Tricontinental Conference in Cuba in 1966. The Tricontinental put together by the Organization of Solidarity of the Peoples of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, known as OSPAL for the acronym, was particularly active in reporting on anti-imperialist struggles across the third world and propagating revolutionary discourse along with ensuing visual rhetoric and aesthetics. It effectively and diligently mobilized different media channels for that purpose, which included the historic OSPAL posters, some of these uh, you can see here, uh, and the Three Continental Magazine, which were published in four languages, Spanish, English, French, and Arabic, and distributed through sub subsidiary networks in Cuba, Lebanon, Panama, Mexico, and India. Three continental subscribers, uh, subscribers to the magazines were promised posters issued by the organization as part of its annual solidarity campaigns. The left in the so-called developed world was not imperable to the revolutionary discourse incoming from the third world. The radicalization of the youth in the 1960s along Maoist and Guevarist position is undoubtedly a globally pervasive phenomenon revealing lassitude with the hardened bureaucratic communism of Soviet Russia and impatience with the traditional Marxist-Leninist models of social change. The rise of a globalized new left is epitomized by the simultaneity of uprisings of, in 1968, where the streets of Paris, Prague, New York, Tokyo, Berlin, and Mexico City in the same year became one by one theaters of urban political dissent which in most cases resorted to militant direct action. In its, most public, in its most typical public display, international solidarity with the Third World took the form of protests demanding an end to US war in, in Vietnam. In more radical expressions, militants of the West took up, took up arms. The idea of bringing the war home was the radical alternative to the political dictum of the day calling to stop the war in Vietnam. Militant groups in the United States, such as the Weather Underground, who popularized the slogan of bringing the war home, as we can see in that flyer by them, linked and, imagine, linked and imagined themselves as part of one and the same battle with their third world comrades against a common enemy, US-led imperialism. The Red Army faction in West Germany, and you can see their logo in the bottom, uh, equally espoused revolutionary violence in the, its rhetoric and actions. Its founding members trained with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, and maintained support to the Palestinian struggle. We see the same happening with the IRA and Palestinian solidarities and networks of relations between it Italian radicals and uh, others around the world. Conclu I will conclude. Um, looked at from a global design perspective, the AK image traveled from east to west, counter to the hegemonic flow from west to east of modern consumer goods and related cultural forms. 
Its disconnection from purely economic forces of global capital facilitated the possibility of an alternative route. More specifically, its symbolic strife with that very economic structure enabled the reversal of the flow from the third world to the west. The, ubiqu the ubiquitous symbol traveled across transnational networks of solidarity in and through political imaginaries, constituting in its trajectory revolutionary subject who espoused violence as a legitimate means of struggle. In a context of Cold War modernity, and I'm referring <coughs> here to Crowley and uh, Jane Pavitt's work, the Soviet rifle did rival the US M16. However, within a global discourse of anti-imperialism, the Soviet reference mattered less for its new leftist proponents. Its symbolic impetus, in fact, grew out of the cracks of the Cold War polar opposition between the two superpowers. The itinerary of the AK-47 as an object image points to political dissentering, historical contingency, and geographic disjuncture, which challenge preoccupations with which challenge preoccupations with design ingenuity and countries of origin. Perhaps, perhaps a lesson to learn for those of us studying global design history, especially as we strive to think of modernism in design outside the putative framework of a Western originary and influence. Thank you. Thank you.